Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. At Lawn Abbey last month, Dame Hilary Mantel and Professor Dermot McCulloch reflected on the life of Thomas Cromwell and his place in the Reformation. They were speaking at an event to mark the 900th anniversary of Lawn Abbey, which Cromwell was fond of visiting. Hilary Mantel is, of course, the author of Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies, both of which were awarded the Booker Prize and are published by Fourth Estate. The final book in the trilogy, The Mirror and the Light, is due to be published next March. Professor McCulloch's Thomas Cromwell A Life was published last year by Alan Lane to critical acclaim. In this week's Church Times, we published an edited record of their fascinating discussion at Lawn Abbey. And on this two-part podcast, we bring you even more of the event. In part one, we hear presentations from each of them about how, as a novelist and historian respectively, they have approached the Putney boy who became Henry VIII's chief minister. The event was introduced and moderated by the Bishop of Brixworth, John Holbrook. It is a delight to welcome Professor Dermot and Dame Hilary uh, as our speakers this morning, and in some ways to listen in on their conversation. Uh, both of you are uh, wonderfully generous in the credit you give to the other uh, for the renewed interest and understanding of Thomas Cromwell. Uh, though um, even the two of you can't agree on how you pronounce his name. Uh, <laughs> from a part of the world where we can't agree how to pronounce the name of our rivers, um, that uh, is perhaps not entirely surprising. Um, the, the size of your books is only matched by the depth of your learning. The size of your books gives me cause to give hearty thanks for my e-reader. The quality of your books gives me cause to give thanks to God and for the work of novelists and historians at helping us to understand and to live in our past. And so uh, thank you to both of you for, for what you do and for being here to share it with us. Just a very brief introduction uh, to Hillary. Dame Hillary is a writer and a critic. Her Thomas Cromwell novels, Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies, were both awarded the Man Booker Prize. Wolf Hall also won the Walter Scott Prize and Bring Up the Bodies, the Costa Book Award. They're published in 37 languages and were adopted as a television series for the BBC. The stage adaptation played in Stratford-on-Avon in the West End and on Broadway. And the final book of the trilogy, The Mirror and the Light, will be published next March. With no further ado, Dame Hilary. May I say what a great pleasure it is, a real delight to be here at Lund in this festival atmosphere. It's one of my favourite places that I've been to in the course of researching the book. It's lovely to be invited back to share the anniversary with you. I must begin with a sort of apology. I have a horrendous cold. I am hoping my voice will last out. Um, any prayers, just throw them <laughs> my way. Um, I call my little section of today, don't you mean Oliver? Because that is exactly what people used to say to me 
when I, I first said I was writing about Thomas Cromwell. And they don't say it any longer. <laughs> and it, it seems odd that it took a novelist to bring such a major figure to public attention. But there has always been a mismatch between what Thomas Cromwell has meant to historians and what he's meant to the general public. And that's the case whether they're novel readers or theatre goers or film goers. For some academics in the past, uh, Cromwell has been nothing but a cynical hatchet man, clever but destructive. There is a far more interesting, vital, creative figure that the great Tudor historian Geoffrey Elton uncovered, or some people say created. Now, the barrier between Cromwell and the general public, um, partly created by the fact that it's proved very difficult to write his biography. And in my view, although there are many biographies that have something to contribute, it wasn't until Dermot did his work that one got a sense of the whole man, of a real person. There's several problems for the biographer, which the novelist also shares. His early life is mostly off the record. And it exists as a set of interesting traditions and almost folk tales rather than a set of verifiable facts. And in the second phase of his life, when he's working for Cardinal Wolsey, he begins to come on the record. And then in the third phase, as secretary to the king, and later, well, in effect, Henry VIII's first minister for almost a decade, he doesn't just come onto the record, he is the record. His work is everywhere. His eye, his hand are everywhere. Paradoxically, that makes it difficult because it's too big to pin down. He ranges across every department of government. Uh, he, accordingly, biographers have tended to think of him in compartments. So there's Cromwell and the church, Cromwell and finance, Cromwell and parliament. And you readily see what happens. You can't section a human being like that. So a sense of a man being in there vanishes. Now, to create a human being, you have to be on top of a huge amount of detail. I should say to recreate a human being. You need a grasp of the detail, but you have to be able to see the wood for the, for the trees. And this has eluded a lot of biographers, but not this one. In, in some respects, my task as a novelist has been easier because 
where the facts run out, I could build something in the gap. <laughs> and I could create for him an inner life, a memory, a conscience, a set of hopes and fears. He wasn't self-revelatory. He didn't leave us writings that illuminate the state of his soul. In his letters, he stuck to business, just occasionally. Passion breaks through, and those moments are really worth waiting for. And then you think of Holbein's portrait. I don't know if you can call it to mind. That massive hulking presence in the, the dark wool and furs. It's closed. It seems to repel the light. It's as if he were bodily present, but mentally somewhere else. So where was he? And where was he when he was being painted? Where did his thoughts wander? And it was the deficiencies of that portrait. So dead, if you compare it, say, to Holbein's portrait of Thomas More, so swift, so fierce, so intellectual, so alive, that he almost comes out of the canvas. And there Cromwell sits and defies you. Make something of me. But it was the deficiency of the portrait that pushed me on. I thought, I'll try and find him. And that, and also the simple and sinister figure that he has become in popular culture. You'll probably be able to think back a generation or two to the, the very influential play and film, A Man for All Seasons, which created an indelible portrait of Thomas More as a 1960s liberal. <laughs> <laughs> and it has proved impossible to shake. Uh, so has the, um, the, the anti-verse, the black portrait of Thomas Cromwell. Um, in fact, as the part is written, it's not without its subtleties, but I've never seen an actor interpret it with the least subtlety at all. They've decided Cromwell's a villain and that's that. So my three books written over 12, 13 years now, take him from his days of obscurity to his end on Tower Hill, 1540. For me, though, he's still a work in progress. And at the moment, because I only finished my book about a month ago, swirling around in my head are all the books I could have written or the alternative versions, the choices I made in every line. But there comes a time to commit, and it is now. And when the book's out, I hope you will think I have done justice to this remarkable life. And in any event, nobody will mix him up with Oliver again. <laughs>
It's a delight to have this as a shared conversation and to also welcome uh, Professor Dermod. A word, of, a word of biography in a moment, but um, I mean, my particular appreciation, sir, of your work is your willingness to critique the church for its failures and its foolishness, of which there is plenty. Um, I also love the way in which, thinking of your essays on the Reformation, um, there's always a surprise at the end of each essay. And, uh, and in the book on Cromwell, um, you manage the same surprise very early on in one of the earliest chapters. Uh, but I won't spoil it by telling you what it is. <laughs> Professor Dermot McCulloch, Professor of the History of the Church at Oxford University, Fellow of St. Cross Cox, Oxford, and prize-winning author, has written extensively on the 16th century and beyond. His history of Christianity, the first 3,000 years, and the BBC TV series based upon it first appeared in 2009. And that book won the Cundill Prize, the world's largest prize for history. His three-part TV series for BBC Two, How God Made the English, aired in 2012. And his BBC Two series, Sex and the Church, aired in early 2015. Uh, he's written Silence, A Christian History, the Gifford Lectures, and his collected essays on the Reformation appeared as All Things New, Writings on the Reformation in 2016. His most recent big book, Thomas Cromwell, A Life, appeared in 2018, and he was knighted in the UK Honours List, a New Year Honours of 2012. You've come to tell us uh, the title for today, Thomas Cromwell, getting him right. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, my lords and lady bishops. Now, how nice it is to be able to say that. <laughs> uh, what a delight to be in Lorne. This is my first visit, and I really should have come to Lorne to get the measure of Thomas Crummel, but we've heard the measure in that wonderful extract. Uh, if you try and research Thomas Crummel, you have an archive of thousands of items. It took me five years to go through the manuscripts. Uh, they are difficult because of the volume, but also because of the oddity of the archive. It's what, in these days of email, we call the inbox. It's all the things sent to him. And the, the sent mail, his letters, are virtually missing. Thousands on thousands of items, only about 300 letters of Thomas Cromwell himself. So the voice is difficult to get. And the, the fascination of the project was to see how I could recall uh, the, the man from this archive without the genius of a novelist, without the freedom that a novelist has to fill in the gaps. And uh, one of the clues which started me down this road was not the manuscripts, which, of course, my old supervisor, Sir Geoffrey Elton, had already combed with far more fierce intensity than I had. Uh, how to get beyond the, the letters, the words, the writings. And I found one thing which also clearly, Hillary also uh, found illuminating in a curious way, that portrait, the Holbein portrait, of which the original is in the Frick in New York. Some of you may have seen it. 
it's in a room with uh, another Holbein, either side of a fireplace, and the other Holbein is Sir Thomas More, and Hillary's already referred to that. There is Sir Thomas More looking noble and thoughtful and a bit like the martyr he would become. And there is Thomas More, uh, Thomas Cromwell, looking like a puffy bureaucrat within a minute of losing his temper. <laughs> and so much has hung on those two portraits. They have created two images. But there's one rather interesting thing about these pictures. The Moor, we now know through a minute analysis of it, was much altered while it was being painted. As if Sir Thomas More wandered into the atelier of Herr Holbein and said, uh, Herr Holbein, I'm not sure, could you just uh, twitch that a bit? I'm not sure I look noble and thoughtful enough. <laughs> bit, bit more martyry, please. <laughs> Whereas the Cromwell portrait, the Cromwell portrait was not altered while it was being painted. Moreover, we know that this very portrait, the one you see in the Frick, hung in his own parlour. It's as if he said, yeah, okay, that's me. I'm going to take it and I'm going to look at it. Uh, you'll know perhaps that his collateral descendant, Oliver, famously said of his portrait, it must be warts and all, almost as if this was a Cromwell family joke dating back to Thomas. And I thought, how interesting. Thomas is a man easy in his skin. And something else gave me that clue. The peerage title that he took that Hillary's already referred to. He was made baron in 1536 after the death of Queen Anne Boleyn. Boleyn, uh, more of that anon. The title he took in 1536 was Baron Crummel of Wimbledon. Now, Wimbledon at the time had a particular resonance. It had been an ancient manor of the Archbishop of Canterbury, newly confiscated to the estate of Thomas Cromwell, one of the very first estates that bishops lost during the 1530s. Interesting, it should be Cranmer, his friend, who lost this property. But part of the manor of Wimbledon, this great spreading wealthy manor to the south of the Thames, was a little hamlet called Putney. So you see what Thomas Cromwell had done by getting the heralds to give him that particular title. He was saying to the ranks of affronted nobility sitting on the benches in the House of Lords with him now, I'm Thomas Cromwell from Putney. I am the brewer's son, the blacksmith's son. I don't care who knows it. I hope the Duke of Norfolk, that arch snob of the early 1530s, 1540s, I hope the Duke of Norfolk heard that and bridled. This is a man who is perfectly at happy, happy with who he had been and who he now was. And that is one of the reasons that so many of the nobility of England loathed him, because he was cleverer than they were, and he was just a brewer's son from Putney in the manor of Wimbledon. All that began to interest me. It began to suggest that the bureaucrat, the arch-bureaucrat, the author of the Tudor revolution in government that Sir Geoffrey Elton had created or rediscovered 
in his books, was something more than that. There was something interesting, personal, and you could squeeze the archive, squeeze the evidence to find that person, and the real Thomas Cromwell would begin emerging. Another very powerful visual image conveyed some of this new story to me straight away. Hillary also spotted this. Working independently, we came to the same point, and I wonder whether it was this particular visual clue which also fascinated her. His coat of arms, his heraldry. Now, heraldry <coughs> in the 16th century was uh, rather as road signs are to us. You have to know what they mean or you will get in serious trouble if you misunderstand them. Heraldry conveyed meanings. What did the coat of arms matriculated or formally registered by Thomas Cromwell in 1532, what did it signify? Anyone would look at it and say, oh, this is the arms of Cardinal Wolsey. He's taken the top of Wolsey's coat and he's made it the middle of his. He's changed what's technically called in heraldic language a chief into a fess. And on it are the same things. Tudor rows, two Cornish chuffs, those black birds, Beckett's, because every Thomas in Tudor England could look to Beckett, Thomas Beckett. Ironical, isn't it? The man who destroyed Beckett's shrine had these two Beckett's, these chuffs, on his arms. But what he's saying in this coat of arms is, I am Thomas Wolsey's man. Now, just emphasize when this coat of arms was registered. 1532, two years after the cardinal was in his grave and disgraced and a non-person. There is a message for the court of Henry VIII, the new coming minister, the man taking over roles of power, is saying, I'm Wolsey's man. Don't you forget it. And there were many people who would find that intensely irritating. Uh, the Duke of Norfolk, who I've already mentioned, Thomas Howard, Duke of Norfolk. But also the Duke of Norfolk's niece, the coming lady, not yet queen, but on the way to it, the Lady Anne, the Lady Anne Bullen. She would have been furious because she was the chief person to have destroyed the cardinal. She had decided that she, he was her chief enemy, the man in the way to getting rid of Catherine of Aragon, to uh, the way of getting uh, the obstacle for Anne to take over that role. And here is the minister saying, I'm the cardinal's man. That has a corollary. It shows us that Thomas Cromwell was not a friend of Anne Bullen. He was her enemy. He probably hated her as much as he loved the cardinal. Now, this is a surprise, because since the 1560s, the picture has been of these two people, Anne and Thomas Cromwell, as the great heroic allies of the Protestant Reformation. And Protestants they were in later language. They were both people of the Reformation. So it was natural to suppose that they were allies. And it, it would be very untidy for the story, the heroic narrative of the English Reformation, for them to be enemies. But they had been. And it was chiefly Thomas Cromwell who had destroyed her, 
1536, made sure that the king's rage with her, his disappointment at not getting a son, was turned into a will to destroy her. That was the doing of Thomas Cromwell. And if you look at the events, once you've got that big idea in your mind, the evidence shows you. No evidence of friendly contacts between them and a great yawning lack gap in Thomas Cromwell's career. He got virtually no major promotion while she was still queen. He didn't even get a knighthood. And once she's dead and gone, knighthood, Baron Cromwell of Wimbledon, Lord Privy Seal, it all waited for Anne to go. So that actually reversed the story. Is that the story had been simplified, deliberately simplified, since the 1560s, because it was just too complicated to think of these two Protestant champions hating each other. And once you start seeing that, all the corollaries go on piling up. Because if Cromwell hated Anne, there was another great lady at the Tudor court who would automatically be an ally. The Lady Mary, the daughter of Queen Catherine of Aragon, who was now put back in the succession as the heir to the throne, pending a son from uh, Jane Seymour. She was the heir to the throne. This was an alliance which brought down Queen Anne Boleyn. And the alliance went on. So that in, on 14th of February, 1537, there is a payment in Thomas Cromwell's accounts to 20 golden crowns to be my Lady Mary's valentine. Now, this is a slightly uh, 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 unequal relationship. She was about 19 then, and he was a dumpy widower. But really, it's uncle and niece, I think, uh, is the significance of this. And it's also saying, we're allies. And uh, a year later, she would be goddaughter, uh, god godmother, sorry, to his first grandson. This is a real relationship, which again, of course, destroys, complicates the story, doesn't it? Because this Lady Mary is going to be on to be Queen Mary I, Queen Mary Tudor, Bloody Mary, the, the, the persecutor of Protestants. But let's not anticipate. The job of a historian is never to have hindsight. And we've got to get rid of that hindsight and see this young lady who saw this man as her way forward. How unexpected it all is. And then I ask myself the question, well, Cromwell's career is so odd, isn't it? It's odd because he had been a private man out of the spotlight entirely uh, and only entered what you might call a public role in his 39th or 40th year of life when most Tudor people were uh, thinking, right, it's all over now. I'll just make my peace with God and that's it. In 1524, Thomas Cromwell entered the service of Cardinal Wolsey. Why? Why did this... Apparently obscure lawyer, moneylender, you know, trader in London. Why did the cardinal pick him out from everybody else? Now, the answer uh, was in one of Hillary's readings. Backstory. The, the boy who fled Putney, as you might do if you're an enterprising boy, but most enterprising boys fleeing Putney would go downriver to London the great metropolis. No, he didn't do that. He went past London to Italy, to Florence. 
and made his career there, came back mysteriously well-educated in his early 20s, speaking several languages, of course the main one being Italian. Now that's what the Cardinal noticed in 1524. He found the best Italian in Tudor England for a very particular purpose, to negotiate with the Italian sculptors who were making his tomb. If you wanted a really top-notch tomb in Tudor England, you went to the Italians, uh, the competition being the tomb of Henry VII in Westminster Abbey. Many of you will know it by Torrigiano. Well, Torrigiano had gone, but Benedetto da Rovezzano, another Florentine, was still in England. And so there is Thomas Cromwell to do the job of negotiating with the Italians, to say, uh, from the, when he heard what the Cardinal said that morning, uh, ex excuse me, Signor Ro uh, Rovezzano, the Cardinal doesn't quite like the nose on the sculpture. Could you just tweak it a bit? And then a joke in Italian, then back to the Cardinal say, yes, it's all sorted, Your Grace. It's all right. So that's why he entered the Cardinal's service. And around the tomb were the things which uh, were the industry of prayer for that tomb. The chantries, the prayers of priests going up from two great colleges, one in Ipswich, one in Oxford. And these would be the most expensive and splendid colleges anyway. The model was uh, another King Henry, King Henry VI, who had created colleges in Cambridge and Eton for his souls. Well, the Cardinal's colleges were going to be much more splendid and expensive than Henry VI colleges. Of course, they had to be. And that would be very expensive. Many uh, institutions would have to be dissolved in order to create the funds. So that's the second part of Thomas Cromwell's job for the Cardinal. It is to dissolve little monasteries for a better, higher, godly purpose, to pray for the Cardinal's soul. And that's what he did in the Cardinal's service. I call it the legacy project. <laughs> and it also explains how he entered the service of King Henry VIII. Because when the Cardinal was disgraced for not solving the Catherine of Aragon problem, sent up to York in disgrace, simply to be Archbishop of York. What a terrible fate. <laughs> Henry was determined to humiliate his former friend and also confiscate his estates and his tomb. This would now be the tomb of the king. No more cardinals here. All the cardinally bits were thrown away, all the cardinals' hats and things, but the tomb was still very splendid, unfinished. And now it will be the king's tomb, still being worked on, Benedetto de Rovezzano. He'd have to create a new sculpture in the place of the cardinal. And Cromwell was there to do the same job. It's a curious way in to uh, a career in the nine, in, in, for over nine years as the king's chief minister. Now, think of the oddness of the story I've just retold to you. It sounds very Catholic, doesn't it? Here is a man who hates Anne Bullen, loves a cardinal, the Pope's representative in England, who spends his time building up chantry colleges for the cardinal, who is very pally with the Lady Mary. How does this, signi how does this square with the man who is the creator, in many ways, of the English Reformation? Well, it does. It does for the simple reason that human beings are complicated and often a bit devious. So from the early 1520s, it is quite clear that Thomas Cromwell was a man of the Reformation. 
His friends were the future stars of the Reformation. Miles Coverdale, for instance, creator of the Psalter we used at Evensong last night. He used his job under the Cardinal to further Reformation. He used the Cardinal's dissolutions to put in place in those colleges people who would later be called Evangelicals or Protestants. The Cardinal's College in Oxford was suddenly revealed to be a nest of reformers, Lutherans, and all were still Cambridge men in Oxford who had recruited them. It was Thomas Cromwell, this underling, the tomb maker, the dissolver. He had did un done all this. And when he entered the king's service, he did exactly the same thing. He went on subverting the king's purposes towards the Reformation. The most startling example was uh, a, a plan which I could only recover by fragments on fragments on fragments to see the jigsaw. And the plan was to, to give England links to a, a foreign city with which it had no previous links, the Swiss city of Zurich, by then one of the great centres of the uh, mainland European Reformation, far more radical than Luther's Reformation, and far more hated by Henry VIII for its heresy. And yet Thomas Cromwell quietly put in place what can only be described as a student exchange. <laughs> Young Oxford dons went to Zurich, and the adopted son of the chief pastor of the Reformed Church of Zurich came to Oxford. Extraordinary thing, this young Swiss going to the place at the other end of the world, being Swiss, he kept a wonderful diary of it. And from the diary, we can work out the ways in which Thomas Cromwell's friends posted him all the way to Oxford. If the king had known what this was about, he would have been furious. And I wonder if one element in Thomas Cromwell's fall was simply that some enemy of Thomas whispered to the king, your minister is a heretic. And of course, that was one half, half of the charges against Thomas in the act of attainder. He is a heretic as well as a traitor. But traitor? How was he a traitor? Well, he was one of the other startling things so many other startling things I could bore you with, but I'll leave you with this last startling thing. The marriage of his son Gregory. Who did Gregory marry in 1537 at the age of about 17? He married the Queen's sister. You heard her name, Beth, Elizabeth Seymour. Elizabeth Seymour. Think of it. The brewer's son from Putney has a son, and that son marries the king's sister-in-law, which makes Gregory the king's brother-in-law. And it makes Thomas Cromwell, in an informal sense, the king's uncle. <laughs> now, picture yourself in, as Henry VIII, in the watches of the night when you, as we all do, wake up at two o'clock in the morning and brood, you think, what does that mean? What does it mean that Thomas is now there so close when my dynasty, the Tudors, if I'm honest, had so little claim to the throne when we came? What is that? And you can see the way in which all those enemies, the Duke of Norfolk downwards through the nobility, 
what they would make of that when Thomas Cromwell made that fatal slip of marrying the king to a lady who looked perfectly pleasant as far as we can see, but somehow repelled the king. And the only way that Henry could get rid of poor Anne of Cleves was by the process of annulment, and that annulment could only be on one ground of the many grounds for annulment, non-consummation, which meant impotence. The king was forced to stand in front of a row of po-faced senior clergy and tell them that he could not get it up. <laughs> and then we wonder why Thomas Cromwell fell. He had humiliated the king. And the one thing that these busy ministers like Wolsey and Cromwell could not do was fail. And he had failed in the most spectacular way possible. That is why the king believed all the nonsense about heresy and treason. The enemies of Cromwell had successfully played on the king's psychology, the king's weakness. And so it was all over. And in a curious way, that's the most traditional bit of the story, isn't it? Anne of Cleves, and it's true. Occasionally, the cliches are right. But a lot of the time, fascinatingly, they are not. So read on, dear readers. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.